This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 92. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 92 you're listening to, and it's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. Great to be back with you here on the 92nd episode. We are inching closer to our 100th show, and as I record this, uh, it is actually the two-year birthday of the show, birthday, anniversary, whatever you want to call it. Anyhow, it's been two years, yeah. So if you want to uh, go back in history and check it out, go on back to uh, number one. It's a very short episode. It's like 15 minutes, I think. But it was just me announcing the show, letting you know what was coming up next. So there it is, two years, passing by so fast. So let's get to this first. Uh, I want to tell you about our, our guest today, uh, Mr. Chuck Zwicky, who is a referral, actually, from our good friend Ross Hogarth. If you haven't heard Ross's episode, you can hear that if you go over to the podcast archive at the front of the page, the WCA, WCA podcast archive. That's right. It's in the top menu level there on the website. You can click on Ross's episode. He was WCA number 17. That occurred, let's see, the original Ross Hogarth episode. When did that take place? Uh, that was April 13th of 2015. Yeah, so go back in time and check that out as well. But in the meantime, we have, uh, uh, there's the phone going, vibrating, because people are chiming in and wishing wishing the, the show happy birthday. That's That's really cool. Thank you all. Anyhow, so Chuck Zwicky is on today. You probably know Chuck's work. Uh, he's worked with Soul Asylum. He has worked with uh, Information Society. He's worked with, of all people, Prince. Yeah, heavy duty there. I'm sure that's an interesting gig. He's also worked with the Rembrandts, Mandy Moore, and Drowning Pool. So Chuck Zwicky coming up shortly. Let's see, what do I have going on for you? Well, we have an event coming up, I'll tell you. <clears throat> Let's see. Let's go on over to that event. Uh, we're talking about uh, this is going to happen on... October 1st, which is a Saturday, uh, 12 to 1 p.m. at the 141st AES convention. And uh, this is a an event that we're putting on with Focal over at the Focal booth. That's number 813. Uh, and this is going to be an interview with Brad Wood, who's worked with the Smashing Pumpkins, Liz Fair, Placebo, Veruca Salt, uh, just to name a few. And yeah, so Brad's going to join us in person. So I would encourage you to come by and watch and uh, listen and say hello. And if you can't be there, not a problem. Uh, we'll be streaming it live over the internet. You can go to, uh, we're going to be streaming it with our friends from Pyramix, actually. www.pyramix.live uh, will take you there. And you can watch us live over the internet and chime in and, you know, that way you can kind of be there in spirit, but actually see what's happening. So. I like that. That's going to be cool. So yeah, so we got that coming up. AES. Now we are, of course, around the corner from our 100th episode, which we are going to have over at 25th Street Studios. That's going to take place. That will also be uh, st streamed live over the internet. And that's going to take place in November. That's going to be on Friday, the 18th of November. And more details will come as we announce the, uh, the guests and uh, give you all the details about the streaming and of course, if you're local in the Bay Area, you can uh, come on by the party afterwards. There's going to be uh, first a live streaming in front of a, a live audience. And that is uh, that is an invite-only situation because we only have so much space and we have to accommodate some folks that uh, have been on the show and some folks that are coming into town to be on the show. So, uh, But the party afterwards, yeah, that's, a, that's just going to be a free-for-all. So come on by, grab some free beer, and then we'll have a pizza food truck outside. So yeah, it's going to be a good time. So that's it. I think we need to jump right into it here with our guest. So uh, here we go with Mr. Chuck Zwicky here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you're a friend of Ross's. Yeah. Did he warn you ahead of time before he sent that Facebook message to say, <laughs> hey, you got to talk to Chuck? Or did he just do that? I heard his podcast on your thing and I... I I said, Ross, that was beautiful. You know, all the stuff he talked about in his podcast, especially how many Halloweens do you get with your kids? You know, 
And he's like, man, that's awesome. And, and he said, I'll make an introduction. And here we are. I've known him for a little bit. We've been on a, a couple panels, I think, over the years. I think I first met him in uh, New Orleans, uh, maybe a year or two before Katrina. Right. At a tape-op conference. I think we were on a Mixing in the Box panel uh, at another tape-op conference, maybe in Arizona, possibly. Anyways, yeah. Known him for a little, little while. I met Ross through the faders. I got a track in and I'm like, this producer I work with in LA and I'm like, who, who cut these drums? And he goes, oh, Ross Hogarth. I'm like, really? These are great. Let's start with right now. Right now, here we are. Tell me about your current world today. You're in New York. So tell me about that world. Tell me about what the day-to-day is for you. I'm originally from Minneapolis. I built a number of studios out there, worked in a lot of records out there, and then in 2001 decided to move to New York, which is my second favorite city in the world. I was supposed to drive out from Minneapolis with my gear and with a friend who had a studio here who was going to pick up some gear. It takes 24 hours to drive from Minneapolis to Manhattan. So we were going to leave Monday at 7 a.m., arrive Tuesday 7 a.m., go have breakfast in some place I'm afraid to be because I'm afraid of heights. I was supposed to arrive here at 7 a.m. Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. We were going to go have breakfast on the top of the World Trade Center. And I get the call on Sunday and he's like, look, there's something wrong with the RVs, air conditioning. Do you mind if we go next week? I'm like, sure, I'm in no hurry. And then Tuesday morning, get a call from a band I just produced in England talking to the singer for like an hour. And he goes, oh, have you heard the news? I'm like, he sounded grave like his manager had died. And I said, oh, no, what? He goes, where are you? I said, well, I'm still in Minneapolis. He goes, well, do you have a TV unpacked? I said, yeah, he goes, turn it on, any channel. So I turn on the TV and whoa, (laughs) there's my new home. So... I kind of took my time coming out here, got here in November. And for like two years, you know, there was nothing going on. I had a few sessions, but I mostly just walked around learning the city and doing photography and kind of just kind of getting eased into this new environment. You know, moving to New York is a big, it's a major leap for most people. A very good friend of mine here, my best friend is this fine art photographer. And he said, you know, it takes about two years in a city to get to know where you're at and get people to know you and whatever. So about coming up on two years, I made this decision like, you know what, I've got all this gear here. Um, I get, I've gotten to know a lot of the studios around here, but I just, I can't really sustain that level of work unless I set up a place here where I can mix for the, you know, the people that want to be able to afford me to mix without renting a room for 2,500 a day. That day I decided that I'm like, okay, went out, bought a G5. I started pulling my gear out of the closet. And that day, I got five people who contacted me asking if I could mix. I had had nothing, you know, coming in. And just that one day I made that decision. Suddenly I had five records to do. And I was like, okay, this is a good sign. I put the shingle out mentally and the work started coming in. So I started exploring, you know, can you work, you know, from home? Can you work largely with a computer without a console and those things? And I started integrating the outboard gear and it's just been progressing like that to the point where I have a completely stable setup that's recallable and there's never an issue with any of that stuff. It's, it's happened like that. It took, it took some progress. It took some time. I think, you know, like you asked me, what am, I, what am I doing now or what's it like? It's like, well, it's pretty much the same. You know, people contact me to mix. I don't want to jinx it because I don't ask people how they know to contact me. I get people contact me from all over the world, you know, and Right now I'm working on a record for some artists in South America that are great, a European artist, working with some people here in New York. And it's like, it just happens. I mean, I don't like to question it. I'm looking at your profile on uh, soundbetter.com. Right. I was reading through it and the thing that caught me, caught my attention was um, 50 channels of outboard compression, blah, 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 perfectly calibrated so that recalls are never a problem Mm. in regards to this outboard gear. So what does that mean specifically? Recalls are never a problem. Right. In my setup, because I use Logic, there's a insert that goes in the channel that has a variable send and return level on it, plus latency compensation built in. Unlike Pro Tools, which requires like three plugins and also it requires you to de-instantiate to just compare the signal and then the levels are wrong, the latency is not compensated properly and it's a nightmare. So I have my system calibrated so that, for example, if I send a particular level of a sine wave, I'm getting one dB of compression. You know, and I send more level. I get. I mean, if you look at any of these compressors, 1176, LA3, they all have basically the amount of compression is the gain to the input of the compressor, you know. 
So you fix the threshold at a good point where you're, you know, I'm not doing crazy stuff with these compressors. I don't need them to be, you know, and the reason I have so many is because I like them each for certain things. Like if, if that 1967, 1176 isn't working, I'll try the 1974 one. If that's not working, I, I'll go for a totally different sound. I'll use one of these tube compressors that I've built or something. My least favorite word in the world of audio is the Swiss Army knife because I don't need something that does everything. I need something that does something that's identifiable and good and that I can go to to get a certain mood out of it. That's what I have. I have these choices that I make. And if something isn't working, I'll go with something else. It's like It's just like you would do in any level of production. If that guitar part doesn't work, try another one. You know, just if that guitar isn't working, let's try another one. Let's not try to make that Les Paul sound like a Strat or something. Basically, you've got these things set up in kind of with with regards to, say, an 1176. You have the input and the output and the ratio and the attack um, all in, in release set at a specific spot. And you're using logic to determine how hot you're, you're hitting the, uh, the input rather than going to the 1176 on the input and... Mm-hmm turning it up. Yeah, because it really makes no difference. That's a feature I have yet to explore. Mm-hmm. I worked a long time with them on that because I had written a plug-in myself that compensates the latency going to the gear and back. And I had this thing that I could adjust down to the eighth of a sample to get like equipment that's transformer coupled able to line up. If you want to try something in parallel, you're going to hear that discrepancy. So one of their reps came by and started talking to me about my setup and I showed her what I was doing. And so we emailed back and forth for a while and she said something like this. And then they incorporated this feature, this ping feature that allows it to just send a signal out, send a signal back, you know, and determine the latency and compensate for it. Exactly. You're talking about the people from Apple. Yep. Okay. Interesting. So it's obvious to me based on a few, few of your Facebook posts and a few of your comments that you actually are very hands-on with gear in terms of building. You made a plug-in, right? Mm-hmm. So Definitely. tell me about your background with that. It all started when I was about eight years old and my neighbor you know, showed me how to play my sister's guitar. And then we found one of my dad's tape recorders and stuck the microphone in the guitar and it came out the speaker. We made an electric guitar. <laughs> and then I started discovering ways to overdub guitar you know, by myself with a couple of tape decks. Then I wanted to learn how to make effects. So I started studying electronics. So by the time I was about nine or so, I was really getting into learning something about electronics. It just progressed from there. I went to college. I got a degree in electrical engineering, which thankfully I've never had to use for for a living, but it's been very beneficial. And for me, the things that tie together music with science and engineering is all about being in the recording studio. That's where this all comes together. So, you know, I... I started that way. I've built studios. I've done a lot of tech work. I've, you know, modified or, you know, built most of the gear that's in my outboard racks. And uh, I'm trying to get away from that. I'm trying to get away from having customized things anymore. Is it that you're growing tired of it or, or do you find it like just a pain to maintain? You know, I went through the whole gamut of, you know, being an audiophile, being, a, you know, just completely obsessive about electronic design. And I finally came to that conclusion I was talking about earlier when we were talking about gear that if something doesn't work, use something else. Like if you don't like, for example, you know, a friend of mine wanted, he liked this 74 Strat that I have. He goes, that's an amazing guitar. I want to I get one just like it. And he searched for two years to buy this guitar and I went over and looked at it and it's like he had put in jumbo frets, new pickups, replaced the tuners and then decided he didn't like it and sold it. I'm like, well, you know, maybe you should have just gotten a different guitar. <laughs> I want to learn the gear, not conform the gear. You know? Ah, okay. That I want to have I want to have that plain vanilla thing that that I can make it work. You know, and if it doesn't, I'll get something. I don't want to. I can find a design problem in anything and fix it. And I, I just didn't want to be that guy. I'm so it's an experiment for me to to abstain from grabbing the screwdriver and the soldering iron every time I buy a piece of gear. Yeah, you know, one of the things about the gear that made me want to stop modifying it is that the gear was designed to have a certain purpose and a certain sound and a certain function. And learning that is as much a part of the job and knowing that. That's why I have so many different compressors, for example. Each one's going to give me a very different feel. That's part of the job. I want to make a comment about what people consider engineering these days. And it's it's become more of a process of selection 
than a process of learning or understanding. Mm-hmm. And a very good friend of mine who's been mixing in the box for the last five years came over here to listen to something I was working on. And after a few bars, he turned his head to me and said, it doesn't sound digital. And he'd been in that world for a long time. And I said, yeah, but you know, you could, you could do this. You know, you, we could set you up. You have all this gear. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid. I don't really, I don't know how I would set up. I'm like, I can give you a detailed way to do it. And it's like, it's come down to convenience for people. And I want to say there's, I've been thinking a lot about your podcast and it's called Working Class Audio. Mm-hmm. And we divide that into three words, working. It's, this is not a hobby. Do the work. It's a lot of work. Mixing somebody's music is a lot of work. It's not about your convenience. It's about making the best sounding record you can. And when anyone talks about it's too complicated, it's, it's much more convenient to use the plugins. It's like, well, they've put years into making that record and you're telling them that your time is more valuable than theirs. That extra half an hour you're going to spend is more valuable than what might help them a lot. Class. Every time you get a record, it's, it's a master class. You're looking at a, a, a weird mishmash of, of sounds and performances and you're trying to determine how do these work together? You know, what am I going to learn from this? What is that trying to tell me? What does that singer really want me to hear about that guitar part at that moment? You know, and also having class and, and being dignified about your work. You know, mm-hmm. I've discovered something about the really successful people in our industry that I know. There's a word that's not in their vocabulary and that word is sucks. It's always the punters who, oh, that sucks. That band sucks. That guitar sucks. That plug-in sucks. That, those converters suck. It's like, okay, you know, you can keep that for as long as you want. You know, it's the, um, Benjamin Franklin said that if you're persistently arguing for the faults in something, they're yours to keep. When it comes to music and bands, and you're talking about the, the behavior of the people that are successful, they seem to be open. They have a mindset that is, is open and willing to hear things and explore. And Well, the mindset really of these successful people is that this is what we have, but it's what we do with it that's going to matter. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not that we, oh, we can't function unless we have, we're recording at this sample rate or we're doing this in this room or we're doing so many great records have been made with so little technology and so, you know, badly put together studios. And I will have to say just, you know, because I love the fact that on this podcast, you do not obsess about gear. You know, you have a few little questions that are great. I believe that audio fidelity, sex, and money are only interesting topics of conversation in their absence. (laughs) You are just the king of quotes. I mean, from the minute... You and I met over the Facebook Messenger with uh, Ross introducing us. That first quote you laid out, I was just like, wow, you've thought of a lot of, uh, very deeply about a lot of these things. I've like, been doing this for it. a very long time. So it's like, you know, I use these exotic imported speakers made by Yamaha called NS10s. Ah, uh, yes. And I love reading on the internet. I love when people volunteer to tell me how shit they are. Anytime I make a comment about them or whatever, I love how people tell me how those are terrible speakers and you can't work on them because it's like, Gilligan, you can't fly. I can't. Boom. You know, like, really? The, the real thing here, Matt, is I'm sorry you can't get the results you like. That's right. That's right. You know, I'm sitting here looking at my NS10s and, you know, to me, it's a vital tool. Um, it's, I hear it, I understand it and I can make it, um, uh, when my clients come back and I say, so, you know, what are your comments? Well, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm having second nice. thoughts about this part and I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Well, what about the mix? Yeah, oh, nice. the mix is great. I'm just starting to second guess parts and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's, that's a good starting point. I like that. See, we've been marketed to that. There's a dramatic component to every purchase that we must make. And we have traded expertise for commerce. So there's no commerce in expertise. For example, being really good at something, taking the time to learn an instrument, taking the time to learn how to mix, how to listen to music is not very sexy. And it takes a really long time. But if you can be told, hey, if you just had those monitors, if you just had that plug-in, if you just had this computer, you know, then you would have all the things that all your idols have right in the palm of your hand 
but you won't have the expertise. And I think people rely excessively on presets these days to come up with something. They scroll through and scroll through and scroll through. The only way you learn is by repetition. If you like, the reason my gear is set up the way it is is because I've spent decades getting the settings that I like on each piece of gear and knowing that that piece of gear can't go too far out of that that range. And if it if I wanted to do something else, I would use a different piece of gear. Hence the no Swiss Army knife concept. But when people rely on presets and other things, they're not gaining the expertise that they need to do the job, which is sheer hours of repetition. You know, they might tweak a plug-in or whatever, but mostly people are going, well, this person's named, you know, presets or named plugins are giving me this sound. And back in the heavy gear days, especially the 90s, when everybody was starting a home studio, I realized that the people that are collecting the gear of their idols because they want to be just like their idols, I realized, you know, the more you have the same equipment as your idols, the more glaringly obvious it is that you're not them. Ross said it, I think, on his podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, be yourself. Uh, don't try to be somebody yeah. you're not. Because because it. It, it was an Oscar Wilde quote. I've mentioned it numerous times over the episodes of the podcast. But the counter quote to that is Lily Tomlin, who said, I always wanted to be somebody when I grew up. I guess I should have been more specific. <laughs> With regards to the gear and the sales. And I think it's whether or not you buy into messages of buy this and you will become this. It's straight up marketing like a car commercial. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I talk about something, you know, Audio-Technic is a sponsor. I would never tell anybody Mm -hmm. Audio-Technic is the one and only mic manufacturer you consider. I always just say they make, you know, solid tools. And if you're in need of something, you should consider this. I hate being told Oh, this is the one and only thing. This is this is it, man. Mm-hmm. You get this and all your problems will yeah. be solved. I don't believe that. I don't want my listeners to think that I believe that, nor do I wish that on them. I want them to make their own decisions. Right. One of the things I've been studying a lot in the last year or so are cognitive biases and uh, you know, the, the the various things that are we evolved, our brains evolved to have certain cognitive biases so that we can make decisions quickly or whatever. A lot of these are obsolete in our modern age, but we aren't aware that they're still in effect. So there's confirmation bias, there's expectation bias, there's you know all the things that lead to all the, the logical fallacies in the way that we communicate. If you recognize like, what am I supposed to be hearing? Like there was this amazing study about high res, which is, you know, I think a, a real tragedy for the recording business is this term high res. It just encourages people to not pay for music that they don't think is quality because it's not, quote, high res. It's like, it's a big disaster. Most people don't understand how digital audio works. So they believe 16 bits is lower resolution than 24 bits, which in audio, it's simply not. It's the same resolution. The exact same 6 dB per bit applies to 16 bits, 24 bits, 32 bits. But, you know, it's, it's a field a lot of people are making money convincing others that it's the important thing. It's the one thing that matters to them. If you don't record in 24 bits, if you don't mix in 24 bits, if you're not using 96K, you can't possibly be serious. And it's this peer pressure. (laughs) It's this thing that just shows people, you know, you don't know what you're talking about and you're falling, you're gullible. You know, I had a guy who wanted me to mix his record. He recorded at 96K on his laptop, two tracks at a time, drums and everything, two tracks at a time. He'd hired some guy to mix it. The mix was not very good. And so he wanted to hear some mixes. He came over, I played him a track of a rough mix that an artist had sent and then a, my final mix. But all I had was an MP3 of the final mix and the wave of the rough mix. And I played them for him. He goes, no, no, you've got those backwards. I said, no. He goes, no, that's, you're definitely playing the MP3 of the rough mix and that's the wave of your mix. I'm like, no, no, look, that's an MP3 of my mix and that's the wave file of the rough mix. Said, this stuff doesn't matter. It, the, the format that it's stored in has so little effect on the perception of the song. If you look at the heyday of record sales, 1960s and 70s, 7-inch 45s, worst sounding format on the planet. Distorted, whatever. It didn't stop kids from enjoying the music, you know. It's a deep topic, the the whole high-res thing. And it's a controversial topic. It's a controversial in the sense that it really brings out people's emotions. People are very afraid. There's a lot of hypochondria. And what if I'm not getting everything I'm supposed to? I mean, I'll tell you something. If, if format is your problem, conveying an emotion, you have other problems. 
you know, if your song, if I can't, you know, get somebody to understand, if I'm walking through the grocery store and I hear a record playing on their broken system, the left channel only with 60 cycle hum in it, some girl's going to be dancing to it in the aisle. It's like that matters, but that doesn't matter. And I just feel like there's, there's a sense that people are being cheated out of something when they're not working in a particular format with a particular converter, with a particular thing. I mean, I went through the whole audiophile thing myself. And I realized, you know, that the old cliche is that you're, you're listening to your speakers. You're not listening to the music. And, uh, you know, I, I, my sister came by once when I was mixing something. She goes, what are you doing? And I said, I hit play. And she sat down. She pointed at my NS10s and said, those speakers sound amazing. I need to get those. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. But that's my job, to make your system sound good. <laughs> um. I'd like to ask you a little bit about this. And, and I know recently with Prince's death, you have been called upon by some major networks to, to speak about him. I'd like to ask you mm -hmm. the influence that Prince had on you as a person, as an engineer, as a musician to this day, like, what do you think kind of impact he had on you? Oh, it's been huge. Um, I will tell you one thing. There's a group of us that used to work at, Paisley Park that have a, a Facebook group. And somebody posed this question after Prince died, would Prince be proud of you? And I thought about this a lot and I started writing about it. I haven't put anything out yet, but there's so many things about Prince that are so important that people don't realize. But I'll tell you one thing that would make Prince very proud of me is that I have never used Prince's name to get work ever. People inevitably find out that I worked with him. But they're always like, why didn't you tell us that up front? Why don't you put that up? You know, I was, you know, I, up until a few years ago, I never even put it on any of the lists. People would, you know, UA would say, well, what artists have you worked with? And I'm like, okay, I'll put that up there. But that's just for their marketing purposes, but not for my marketing purposes. There's a couple of reasons why I did that. One is I didn't want to attract those people because in Minneapolis at the time, I was getting a lot of tapes sent to me from people who wanted to be Prince. And spending even just the first couple of sessions with Prince, it was clearly obvious that this man was a genius in Thomas Edison's definition in the sense that it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. I've never worked with anybody who works so hard in the studio to be that person. And he gave up so much of his life, like relationships, uh, you know, hobbies, anything else that a normal person would want in their life to be that awesome guy that he is. And, you know, what I took away from that is it's a lot of work, you know, do the work. Don't be afraid of the work. Don't be bogged down. I mean, Prince is not a guy that you're going to have long conversations with about, is this EQ better or is that EQ better? It's working or it's not, you know, he can emote. He doesn't need you to sell him on anything. You know, he's, he's just anybody that's at that level that close to their own muse really has a special quality of understanding music from such an inside place. You know, and I take that with me. I mean, just working on mixes with Prince and working on mixes today are no different. A, a friend of mine commented the other day, he's not a musician. He said, yeah, but when you're working with somebody like Prince, you're really putting a lot of effort in. And when you're working with some, you know, schlocky up and coming band, you're not. And I said, the process is very there is no difference between that. The people that are up and coming are getting exactly the same level of concentration that someone like Prince would get. It's just, that's what I learned. It's, you can't turn that off. He couldn't turn that off. There was a, a quote that I, ha I had to come up with about this. I'm trying to remember. It's like, uh, you know, about if something is uh, drawing attention to itself as a mistake in a, in a mix, you know, you have a problem if that's distracting somebody. But if it's making the music work, that's not a problem. Pop music. Let's just focus on pop music for a second. Pop music is designed to hook people's attention. You've got plaintiff wailing vocals that are pulling at your heart like, oh, this person sounds like they're in pain. They're in, you know what? Let's pay attention. It's our biological wiring. Let's tune into that. This guitar just made this loud power chord on the left channel and then disappeared. What happened? Where did it go? Was it, you know, all the anxiety that it brings up in people is a way of directing the attention. And if you get the vocalist in the song in control of all those things in their personal environment, you have established a scene that somebody can believe in, that they can 
suspend their disbelief. It's like making a movie. So with Prince, he would, he would throw things in and you're like, what is that for? And then three vocal overdubs later, like, oh, wow. You know, that, that's an incredible moment that he created. As you first came to work with him, you know, I'm sure you came in with one viewpoint, went through the process and came out on the other side with a whole different viewpoint because of the things that you've learned from him. Would it, you think that's an accurate statement? Well, I would say that that process took about five minutes. Yeah. I just got a call yesterday from Prince's best friend and we talked for like three hours on the phone last night. And the thing about Prince is that he had cultivated an aura around him that basically he wanted to be left alone. And that's kind of what did him in at the end. You know, he had trained everybody to stay away. And so he was surrounded by a lot of sycophants and a lot of people that they didn't really understand him. And so they would invent the prince that they thought he was. And so before I got thrown in the studio with him, I had about five people tell me stories about, oh, he's going to want this. He's going to want that. People who had never worked with him, but were like studio management or whatever. I walk in the studio and within five minutes, I'm like, he's a really hardworking guy from Minneapolis, just like me. He's doing his job and he's created this badass persona and he's extremely talented, but he's composing things recording, he's getting stuff together really quickly. His attention, once again, talking about directing attention, his attention should never be diverted from the work he's performing. And this thing that I learned from working with someone who works at such a, a fast pace as Prince, I mean, literally many days, I'd go in, he'd come in with a notebook, we'd leave with three songs mixed, recorded and mixed, and just terms of an idea when he walked in and done. What people don't understand who haven't experienced that, and I have a real problem with things like computer interfaces and hardware interfaces and software interfaces in particular, anything that distracts you from what it is you need to do is criminal in the arts world. You know, Apple has changed some things in their operating system where you now have to give so much more visual confirmation to things where previously your body could be trained to reach for a knob or a fader or a button. Now you're actually breaking your attention to pay attention to the operating system. And the operating system is like the worst assistant you've ever had. And you just want to fucking fire them. Like, <laughs> like why are you talking to me now? <laughs> I'm working. Yeah. So that level of concentration is something that most people don't have any exposure to. You know, and I was glad that I had. And since I had been working on music by myself for many, many years before that, I got it. It's like, this is a lot of work and this is a lot of concentrated effort. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you something about me. I don't have a smartphone. I don't text. Wow. I don't sit there and go, I don't look at a screen and, and say over the top of the screen to my friends, I'm listening, I'm listening. I don't do that. I'm not that guy. I have a phone here that's a 1978 AT&T Bell desk phone. It has no caller ID. It rings with a bell. I'll pick it up. I don't know who it is. It's calling. People get really annoyed. How do you know, how do you, how, you don't know this is me? Like, I don't have caller ID. You know, I'm, I'm just in this moment working. I don't need to manipulate the constant influx of distraction when I'm working. And people will be upset. Oh, you don't text. You know, I have to call you and leave a message or send you an email and then I don't know where you're going to get back to me. I'm like, but if I was working on your project, would you want me to constantly divert my attention into someone else's question about their project? The Chinese have an expression that says there are no three bags of gold here. And what it means is you say that to somebody and that's all they can think about. What gold? What are you talking about? You know, there's gold. You know, there is no three bags of gold here. When you're working on somebody's record, and you're distracted by a text or an email, a phone call, anything, it can set you back. It can drain that creative energy, that thing that you're trying to tap into as a professional. And, you know, being a professional is about being able to produce that level of concentration at will as needed. And that is elusive. And I find that if I get involved, I mean, the smartest thing I ever did is I bought that laptop that we're communicating on. I put it in the kitchen. I never checked the internet on the studio computer. I never check emails. I don't need anything that causes a gut bomb to happen in the middle of working on somebody's music. Like, oh shit, I got that email from, oh no, you know, nope. 
when I'm done, I go over, I'll sit down, I'll take a break, I'll do that, clear my head, you know. I posted something the other day. I said, step one in mixing a record, turn Facebook off, you know, because, you know, if you keep the browser open and, you know, I'm guilty of this. I have this computer sitting here and beyond the audio software that's on it is, um, you know, a number of applications and, you know, the email things are coming down, the Twitter alerts and the, and I got to admit it's a major distraction. And sometimes you're like, oh, oh, let me check on that. And then you stop mixing and then you stop the flow. Right. And then you have to pick pick it back up again and go, where was I? Oh, right, right, right. I was working on the drums. I mean, the reality of life is that the only thing you can ever control is where you place your attention. Nothing else. You can't change anything else. And there's a Spanish philosopher who said, show me where someone is thinking and I'll tell you what kind of person they are or something like that. It's, you know, we have to be, we have to recognize that there are things out there trying to steal away our attention from the job at hand. And, you know, working class audio, this is work. This is not a hobby. This is a lot of work. I mean, if people, I'll give you an example, I'll get a mix notes or, you know, very often you're in the studio and somebody says, maybe the vocal should come up or maybe the vocal's too loud. If you've been doing this a long time, your job is to sort of interpret what's happening with them. I mean, there's a lot of psychology that goes into running mm-hmm. a session. And, and for me, the, the, I call myself an amateur social anthropologist. I love to study why do people do the things that they do? What's causing them to think that? Or what, what's important about this that makes them think that's, the, that's where their attention needs to be placed right now? So when someone makes a comment, like, I think the vocal should come up. I know from years and years of experience that there's a syllable in there somewhere that's too low. And I'll know exactly which one that is. And I'll bring that syllable up. I really have a problem with um, engineers who think that they're more important or producers that think they're more important than the artist. And so they get really passive aggressive and they'll crank up the vocal a dB or two and say, how's that? You know, and it's like, it's wrong. It's, it's now the mix sounds funny. You know, now the guitar sounds weird. And now that sounds weird. When you really have to think about what it is that they're hearing. Their, their attention is not going to be as controlled as mine. They don't have that expertise. They don't have those hours of knowing that when you're comping a vocal, that the minutest little details can be lost or enhanced if, if you don't make notes about what you're going for when you're mixing. So I know there are things that are in, you know, in my level of expertise that are not in the artist's level of expertise. So I'll, I'll take that ability to concentrate where they may have been distracted. They heard something they didn't catalog it, you know, like a good producer will sit there while you're tracking and make notes, you know, okay, we need to go back in at, you know, bar 45 for that and of four and just punch that note. You know, that's what they're focusing on. They're not looking at their text going, yeah, that's a pretty good take. Or, you know, the problem is if we don't care about it, why should anybody else? If our time is too valuable to do our jobs, why should anybody care? It's interesting too in the communication part with artists. Recently, I'm I'm working on this on these mixes for this guy, and it's going well. Uh, it's going really well actually. But I did early on get an email about one of the songs, and you know, email as everybody has experienced, I'm sure it can be toneless. Yeah, I think it was in Target with my family, hanging out with the kids in the toy section, and I get this email. Talk about being distracted. You know, I mean, we get distracted by all these technologies when we're trying to mix and work and do records. But when you're with your family and, and these right. things come in and I see you know, on my smartphone and I see the email and I'm like, huh, looking at those comments going, well, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know. And I started to get really irritated and I thought, OK, you need to step back from this for 12 hours, have him come over. And he came over and he's like, yeah, man, it sounds great. There's just, there's these couple parts. You made some edits and I was like, oh, that's what, right. great. And within like two minutes, I mean, less than two minutes, we, he, we solved it. I changed it. He was happy. And I was like, okay, I'm glad I pulled back from that. Yeah. It's hard. It's, I had this conversation with an engineer friend of mine who's been doing this as long as I have. Uh, we're both dealing at the moment with clients that are really stretching those boundaries of, well, of having boundaries and understanding things. And uh, 
an artist friend of mine recommended this book, which you laugh because you've seen it a million times and never read it. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, yeah. Chapter one, the message is two words. Don't criticize. It says criticism never works on anybody. And that's a huge lesson in life. So if you're, it's very easy, especially in emails, to get comments from an artist and they seem antagonistic or they seem like they're just hammering on you about something. And if you just pick up the phone or you just meet them face to face, they go, oh yeah, you know, like you're, you're a client. Like, oh yeah, there's this great thing that I just want to make it a little bit more like that. And you're like, oh, that's easy. You know, so much less stress. And you, know, you wonder how any of the people that are great ever survived in this business because the way we function now is so impersonal and there's so much sociopathic narcissism that goes on in social media and everybody's so entitled to what they think is the best, you know, you know, way of doing something. And it's very hard to see through it, which is why the whole cultural anthropology business comes in. It's like, why do humans do this? Why are humans so annoying? I'll be the first to say that, you know, I, I'm guilty of complaining about clients on the show, you know, without, you know, naming anybody, but just saying, oh my gosh, these people were doing this thing. And it's, and as, as I grow, as I mature and as a human being, as, as an, as a recording professional, I, I just really try my best to lighten up and just step back and go see it from their perspective and say, yes, you know, it's like, we can do anything in these DAWs. And if they want to do it and it's their thing, I just, you know, I'm like, okay, save as. Save as. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, no problem. There's a great uh, topic here, which is how do people discuss their work in public? And on Facebook, you can always tell when somebody's a, just a rank amateur when they start pissing about, oh, these tracks don't sound very good that they sent me to mix. It's like, yeah, that's your job. You know, it's, there's a great story that was in Mix Magazine about... And I wish I could credit the engineer because it was just so such an influence when I came across this as a youngster that this guy was hired to do a remix of a Duran Duran song. And uh, it was he was in LA and the record label was in England. So there's a huge time difference. The, the two-inch tapes had arrived. They threaded them up on the machine. They're getting ready for the mix. And the engineer's like, they sent the wrong take. Like, we, we're screwed. We can't get, possibly get the right tape in time to get this remix to them. And they're like, yeah, pretty sure this, this is some outtake. They sensed the wrong thing. The assistant went out to a record store and bought the album. And they put it up on the CD in the, in the player. And they compared it. And it's like, the engineer said, at that moment, I realized whoever mixed this record's a fucking genius. <laughs> and that's our job, right? People don't realize this. When I, because I love mixing so much. I love tracking when I'm producing. I love working with musicians. You know, I love working with artists. I love sculpting music, but I love mixing. And the first emotion I get when I push up the faders is usually just anger. <laughs> like, what the hell? And then I go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, that's my job. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Let's make this work. That's why they've called you. Yeah. Fix this for us. Make this, you'll, you'll understand what we're saying here. What draws you to mixing? I love the sense of establishing an aesthetic that is made up of sort of semi-immutable objects. Like, it's like cooking. You know, I have these ingredients. I could do five things with this, but what's going to be tasty and nutritious? And how much salt on that lettuce pile do I use? And should it be a lettuce pile? Maybe it should be a salad. You have that. Mm -hmm. And the reason that people hire me is for my aesthetics and my taste. You know, if, if an engineer doesn't have good taste, they're not going to make the right decisions. If they don't understand the artistry of why music affects us the way we do. For example, the, the last word in your podcast is audio. And I thought, we're in the business of working with arranged sound and playing with that arranged sound to change somebody's mood, Right. And that's powerful. It's everything. The only thing any art can ever accomplish is to convey a mood. 
You know, it's not going to change the world. It's going to convey a mood, you know, and if you can discern what that is and that Duran Duran remix story just really kind of blew my mind open to the concept that everything works in the proper context. If you can establish a context in which that is the best lyric you've ever heard, that makes the most sense, you know, because pop music is, you know, it's written by children for children. It's, it's, it's kind of nonsensical. <laughs> oh, man. You are the king of the, the quotes, I, I will tell you. <laughs> but if you can make that, I mean, if I hate a song when it comes in, I have to love it when it leaves. And inevitably, if I find something in that music that makes me love it, other people are going to love it. And, you know, I've said this before, but apathy is contagious. It's the worst disease you can possibly have in the face of art is apathy. If you don't find something that's going to make this the most exciting song you ever heard in your life, or you know, you failed. You know, anybody can put up a mix and go, well, the song wasn't very good. And you know, I don't have the luxury of blaming the, the artist. I don't have the luxury of blaming the musician. So when somebody posts on Facebook something like, you know, oh, these tracks were terribly recorded, I'm like, yeah, surely the sign of an amateur that you think that's remarkable. In other words, worthy of making a remark about it. It's just a day-to-day reality. You know, everything is not perfect. You're creating that. So what do I love about mixing? It's just that you're, you're creating an aesthetic. I also do an awful lot of mastering, which I also like because my father was an optometrist and he worked on some really remarkable things and pioneered some really interesting treatments for people. But the joke is about an optometrist is like, this is, I think it's Paula Poundstone said, do you ever sleep with an optometrist all night? It's better like this or better like this, better like this, better like this. <laughs> well, being one who wears glasses, I, I am very keen on the one or two, which right. is clear. I mean, the late Rudy Van Gelder who just died, the, the Blue Note engineer who did all those jazz records, he was a working optometrist until 1959 when he was so successful as an engineer, he bought his own house and quit the optometry business. But I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like imagining him, okay, Miles, now I want you to re- sing back to me that, that little sax line. Okay, okay, we're going to put a little correction on. Better like this, a little 2dB here. Okay, now let's try your right ear. But he was an optometrist. So for me, working with mastering, it's the opposite of mixing. It's a totally different headspace. I get to occupy another part of my brain because mixing is all about defining an aesthetic that creates a context in which that artist is the most meaningful, driven, excited human on the planet. Mastering has only one criteria. Is this better? Yeah. Am I, am I, am I improving what they've done? Yeah. Is this better? That's the only question you need to answer. If it's not, do something else. It, but that's so, I love that it puts me in that sort of, you know, there's, there's so many modes of, of creativity and you start from, you know, being in a very creative place to being in a very editorial space. And mixing requires you to be in all those spaces simultaneously. Mastering requires you to be in the editorial space, you know, simple observation. Am I maintaining my perspective on this? Am I listening for the things that matter? Am I not fixating on the things that don't matter? And like I said, where do you place your attention? No. Well, I hope you're enjoying our interview here with Mr. Chuck Zwicky here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, but it is that time to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio-Technica. And, you know, they are doing this rebate. I've mentioned it in the last couple shows. They're doing an artist series rebate. That is for the artist series microphones. Uh, they're doing $30, $20, and $15 rebates on a variety of microphones. So if you uh, head on over to audio-technica.rebateaccess.com, you can check it out. And if you forget that link, of course, you can always go to the website, go to the go to the Working Class Audio website, click on the banner that says Artist Series Rebates, the Audio-Technica one with all the microphones on it. Really easy to see. It's right there. Anyhow, click on that. That'll take you right on over to the page that's going to give you all the details uh, the amounts of money coming back to you uh, if you make a purchase between September 1st and December 31st of 2016. So there it is. And uh, of course, if you're unsure about uh, which model you should buy, of course, you should go to audio-technica.com and check it out. Check out the variety of mics, headphones, and turntables that they have while you're at it. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Friends over at Audio-Technica doing, doing some rebates. Well, let's get back into it here with Chuck Zwicky on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's talk a little bit about the business aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
how have you made this work over the years? You know, as the industry has shifted and changed, and I'm sure that the financial model has certainly shifted and changed a bit, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of our expectations of it, you know, say in the 90s versus now. So what makes it work for you now? Well, I've had two mottos throughout my career that have served me well. And those are one, never work for money. Because when you work for money, you're following something besides your muse and your muse will abandon you. Just like that distraction of your attention, that thing is fickle. It will go away. I used to get flown down to Nashville quite a bit to mix and I, you know, I loved it, but there are a lot of engineers down there that are very, um, they didn't like that. They thought I was down there stealing their work. So one or two of them would occasionally pop into my session and boast about some artists they were working with. And it was some, usually some unlikely artist for them. And I would just ask them, well, really, what's, what's your favorite record of that artist? And like, oh, I fucking hate them, but they're paying me. I'm like, really? Mm. Okay. So that's what happens. You become, you know, you're driven by something besides the love of what you are doing at that moment. My life is based on a philosophy that I came up with ages ago, which is based on the question, what if? My, my brother read me an article about people who win the lottery and how like 92% of them go back to their normal standard of living within two years. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do with all that money and they blow it and they get embezzled and they lose it all and they're back to where they started. I thought, well, people spend their whole lives obsessing about what if I had that? What if I had this? What if I had the perfect girlfriend? What if I had the perfect car? What if I had the, that perfect guitar, that perfect studio, that perfect you know, set of monitors, that perfect thing? What if you did? What would you be doing right now? Hopefully the same thing. So working for money is something that just is distracting you from what you're doing right now. You're doing something else. The second part of that motto is never work for free. You know, it's too easy in this business for people to just, hey, you have a studio, right? Why don't we do a record in your place? I'm like, you know, it's like coming up behind a guy and saying at an ATM and saying, hey, you have money. Why can't I have that money? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's something very funny that goes on in the recording business where people just will take advantage. And it's, it's in all the arts, you know, and people do it because they love to. Every touring musician will tell you the same thing. You're being paid to sit on the bus. Being on stage is free. So for me, those, those mottos have helped me to sort of like just keep it in perspective. Now, the, the dollars and cents business, I live in Manhattan. That's not a cheap city. No. I was afraid of New York for my entire life. Always wanted to move here since I was a little kid, but afraid that I would come here, get just beat up financially and be spit out, you know, because the city does that so much to people. So I, you know, I waited until I could work something out. I mean, I was raised uh, by some parents who grew up during the depression and they always said, you know, don't owe anybody money. You never know when all of this could just disappear and you can't, you know, you can't afford to be in a position. So I've never borrowed a penny from anybody. I'm, everything I've ever done, I've worked for and worked really hard to get. So I was living in Minneapolis, came to New York to do a project, met a, a girl who happened to be a realtor. And I said, you know, I was thinking about moving to New York. And she goes, next day, she's like, I found you a bunch of listings. I'm like, really? And she found this apartment in this beautiful pre-war Art Deco building. We didn't know it was that one. It's like, wait a minute, it couldn't be that building. That building's way too cool and fancy and it's got doormen and it's got beautiful, you know, marble and wood panels and, you know, nickel leaf and gold leaf in the lobby. Sure enough, it was. It was an apartment where the previous tenant had been, you know, a previous owner actually had never, he'd been arrested and he, he went from being a priest to being a crackhead in two years. And he, the police knocked the door down and the place was in really rough shape. The floors were destroyed. The walls were destroyed. And I've been working so long and so hard and saving every penny. I'm like, I could buy this place and rent out the place I own in Minneapolis. And that will cover all my expenses here. So I found a tenant for my place in Minneapolis. I moved into this apartment, which is half the size of my place there, renovated it. And I've been doing like that, eventually selling that one and buying a different apartment and renting that out to cover the expenses. So that's something, it just took a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication to not failing. You know, I was petrified that in this city, it's so easy to just get caught in that trap and you're you're gone. It, it will eat up everything you've got inside and out. 
So that's been a huge part of it, not having overhead, not having a responsibility to a bank or anybody else to manage your creativity. You know, I'm not working for money. I'm not working for free. I don't make a lot of money. Nobody in this business makes a lot of money. There's very few people who do. So if you can do what you love and find a way to make it work, you know, that's the main thing. You know, like you tell people all the time on your show, which I greatly admire, don't go into debt over gear. Don't buy things that you don't need. You know, you hear this time and again in your podcast. There's no better advice. Control your overhead. You know, you don't, you don't need to have the things that you think you need to have if you learn how to work the things you already have, you know. Maybe there's some people out there who just want to do recording, but they feel like they have to keep their day gig. Well, I'm sure that there's a small portion of those in that, in that group who the only thing that's holding them back from that is their desire to have so much stuff or, you know, maybe they're in debt and, you know, they're still paying for the couch and the big screen TV and, mm-hmm. The lifestyle, maybe the fancy car, who knows? You know, I, 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 I don't walk in their shoes, so I don't know for sure. But I think that um, as, as I continue to go down the path and, and, and experience the journey, I just start to realize what's, what's important to me. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't drive a fancy car. I can't afford to. And I tell you, I can't wait to pay it off because I just, to me, that, that lack of debt is I, you know, and I'm not completely out of debt yet, but I see that as complete freedom. Absolutely. And that is, you know, I can't control a lot of things in this world, but I can control the, the debt that I personally take on. So, yeah. Right. So getting back to the bigger picture of how to make this all work or how do I make all this work? It's like I have enough of a reputation and enough work to survive easily uh, in this city. But if I moved anywhere else, I could have the world's largest mansion with the you know with three ssls i mean it's like it's insane the sacrifices you make to live in a city like this but i will tell you it's been the best decision i've ever made in my life because so much of what we are is about what we do when we're not working much as i love my work when i get fed up with something or i get stressed out about a track I go outside and I walk around the block and I'm in the sea of humanity. I'm in a beautiful neighborhood in Manhattan and I will walk around the block and I will notice 10 things that are more beautiful than anything I'm thinking of. And I'll notice 10 things that piss me off more than anything that's bothering me about my mix. And I come around the block and I'm level and I go back up and I work. Gives you a good perspective to be, uh, especially in New York. The thing about New York, is that there is really no city in the world that reflects your inner state of mind like New York. For example, if you're walking down the street and something feels off to you, something seems a little strange or a little this, a little that, it's not the city, it's you. The city doesn't care, it has not changed, but it's reflecting that thing that's inside of you. And I've often said, everybody in New York lives in a different city. If you come to New York as a tourist, you'll think, oh, New York is full of graffiti and cutting edge artists. And you look everywhere, you see, you will see that. If you think New York is full of beautiful fashion models walking around in miniskirts, everywhere you look, you're going to see that. Oh, New York is full of Wall Street types in suits. You're going to see that. New York's full of homeless people begging for change. You're going to see that. It reflects your inner state of mind. Everybody here is seeing it. It's like the five blind men in the elephant. You know, everybody's living in a different version of this city. And if you can keep that alive in your head, like, I know there's more to it than what I'm seeing. That's so educational in terms of being alive and being involved in art and being involved in music and keeping that rolling inside of you. Like, what else about this song? You know, I'm only seeing the sides, but I want to see, oh, this is a kick-ass rock tune. But what else is it? You know, what is that guy really saying? Oh, I see. So this, this is kind of a sad, heavy rock song, you know, or it, it forces you because you're out there and there's so many things you see on a daily basis. You know, I know that if I lived anywhere else, I would wither because the two, the two things I suffer from most are isolation and inertia. And if I didn't have the ability to walk outside and just see the world, you know, right there in front of me, I would just, I think I would be very depressed. Well, I mean, especially New York, of all cities in, in the world, the electricity in the air alone mm-hmm. is quite powerful. Yeah. And 
you know, let's say you were out in the middle of, I don't know, you know, I grew up in New Mexico. Let's say you're out in the middle of the desert. Right. That would be a, a slightly different, uh, that would have a slightly different effect on, on you probably. Well, there are people who do that. There are a lot of people that do that, that um, get tired of the city. They get fed up. But I have to say it, it's, it's them. The city doesn't care. It's not doing it to you. It's just there. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. I, I, I really appreciate that. And most of my friends here are artists of some ilk. And we talk about, we don't talk about gear. We don't talk about music necessarily. We talk about ideas. How do we fit in? How does this apply? You know, how does the, um, the changes in photography affect the way you view making a photograph? And how does the changes in recording technology view the way you're making a record? And at the end of the day, does it matter to the end user? No, it shouldn't. And so we need to find a way to bring the, the big picture ideas, you know, into, into everything so that, that when things do change, they inevitably will change. We're not hung up on one way of doing it another way. I mean, I'm not a Luddite. I use outboard gear, but I'm not a Luddite. I, I, I work with like seven different plug-in companies, you know, helping them get their stuff right. But the only reason I'm valuable to them is because I use all this outboard gear. You know, I have that perspective on it. Most of, their, most of their customers have never used this stuff. But in life, I'm sounding so disjointed with all these things I'm jumping back and forth from. <laughs> but in life, you know, it's the same thing. Like living in a place like New York, you're exposed to things that are so unexpected all the time. And learning to deal with that and not let it get to you is so informative just to be alive as a human, to be, I mean, you have children, which mm -hmm. I envy, I must say. Um, I don't, but I can imagine that's the most challenging and rewarding experience you're ever going to have in your life. I always say it's not for everybody, but it, it definitely uh, has an impact on, on my perspective. That's for sure. Yeah. I come from a very large family. I, there's nine kids in my family. Oh, wow. Yep. And to make it more interesting, I have one brother. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you grew up with a lot of feminine energy. I know more about women than most women do. <laughs> my, well, my wife is one of eight. Wow. We're almost out of time, but I, I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you've made it clear with regards to you don't owe anybody money. You don't go into debt for gear. Um, so then when it comes to choosing gear, mm -hmm. what's, what's the basis of the, the decision making? You know, what's the thought process that goes down? It doesn't. I mean, I sat there the other day thinking, what do I need? What do I want? And uh, I'm completely happy with everything that I have. I don't, I don't have that incessant void that we're supposed to as consumers. Mm -hmm. So I'll look around and say, well, I, you know, I'm, most of my career I have spent making records in the weirdest places with the smallest assortment of equipment and just dealing with what's in front of me. So it's kind and maybe this has to do with coming from such a large family. The idea that I basically deserve to have anything beyond what's already there is kind of, I don't think like that. Mm -hmm. Like, why would I think to, it's like, why would I think to ask for something that's not already right here? I mean, that's, that's presumptuous, you know, or something. So I think about it and um, I mean, I'm trying to get rid of stuff. You know, I'm trying to just pare down to the essential things. And so if I find something that I really like, like, for example, I would love to buy a second Allen Smart C2. Love one. Love to have a second one because I want to modify mine permanently. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to have the other one as a backup. But that's not necessary. You know, it's not like it's going to change my life. Um, you know, I, it was an assistant who told me to check out your podcast. And I started listening to it and thinking, this is really good because this is like the things that people need to hear about who want to get into this industry, who think they want to get into this industry. You know, I think about myself, if I had children, would I want one of them to become an engineer like me? Like, well, that would require a lot of, a lot of discussions that nobody's having about what it's really like. And you don't, you're not afraid to cut through to that, which I really admire about this, this podcast. Well, thank you. Yeah, especially talking about just the working class, the work of it, you know, because we're here to do a job. And I think if I was to give some advice to any kids that want to do what I do, it's just don't be afraid of the work. It's always going to be 10 times the work you would think 
it's going to be. I mean, if somebody looked at the automation moves on a typical mix of mine, they'd go, what are you drawing? What, is, what are all those lines everywhere? You know? Are you trying to make a cartoon? Yeah, right. What kind of, is that cursive? <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the, the gear, I'm constantly always trying to whittle it down. It's almost like it's a, it's a goal to try to get down to almost nothing uh, for me sometimes just because mm -hmm. to me it can be a distraction from what I'm doing. But, you know, sometimes a tool appears or presents itself and with very good marketing that I go, hmm, I think that tool could work for me. Right. I'll just spend, you know, a couple of days just thinking about it. And then finally I'll go, okay, I think the emotion of it's past. I, I don't need it. Yeah. Beware the answers to questions no one's asking. Right. There's so much of that out there. Wow. Well, I'm going to have to wrap it up, but um, holy shit, man, this has been really great talking to you. Every one of these shows that I do, I always end the conversation and I'm just like, God, I'm glad I talked to that person. <laughs> and and it's it's great to have the opportunity to speak with you. And I feel like if if I was in New York, I'd be like, let's go get coffee. Let's keep talking. I would love to talk to you more about everything because this, this is a conversation that we need to have. I was talking to an engineer friend of mine yesterday about, you know, I sent him a link to this podcast. I said, this is really good because... I had called him and I said, listen, I really need to talk to you about a client issue that I'm having with this, these mixes. And he, he's like, I'm just in the middle of the most hellish client issues. And, and he says, let me call you when I get home. I'm just, I'm just leaving my shrink's office. And I said, I just came back from my shrink an hour ago. And I'm like, oh my God, we are a couple of guys in New York <laughs> dealing with our clients. <laughs> and I said, you got to listen to this podcast because they talk about all this stuff. And I said, it's like group therapy. <laughs> you know, that is the highest compliment. I got to tell you, that makes me feel amazing to hear you say that. So. Don't, get, don't get your hopes up, Matt. We're not paying you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But uh no, that's, that's great, man. But, but, but unfortunately, this is the reality. I am isolated. I'm not in a complex. I'm, you know, isolated in Manhattan. Yeah, right. But I'm, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't have five other engineers down the hall who I can like just blow off some steam and like come back and be normal. I've got the city to do that for me. But your podcast does that for, I think, for everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Hey, thank you for being on the show. And uh, I'll stay in touch and um, you stay in touch. I will. I'm always here too. So if you never need anything, feel free to call. Okay. All right, man. Take care. And thanks again. Thank you. All right. See ya. Chuck Zwicky here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have him on. Really great conversation. And want to thank our friend Ross Hogarth for that referral. And of course, we want to thank Chuck for being on the show. So good times. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up because we're out of time. You know, want to, of course, thank Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. Want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Vocal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. And obviously, I always thank you all. So appreciate you listening. And uh, that's about it. Nothing more to say, except take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.